welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolich. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And we have a special guest today, Dr. Lawrence Weber, who's a hepatobiliary surgeon in WA, who has been kind enough to come onto the podcast and share his experience and knowledge with us around a pretty wide range of topics. To start off with, we talk about training pathways and how to get a job once you've actually managed to pass the exam and what to look forward to once you have passed. We then go on to talk about a number of different topics. So we're going to touch on colorectal liver metastases, patients with hepatocellular carcinoma and cirrhosis, anatomical factors that determine receptibility of hilar cholangiocarcinoma and pancreatic cancer, neoadjuvant chemo in pancreatic cancer, arterial resections in pancreatic cancer, the ABC of resectability and the MD Anderson model for pancreatic cancer, the broad steps of a Whipple's operation, as well as bile duct injuries. I learned so much from this episode and talking to Laurie, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. He has a really great way of breaking down a lot of these complex topics, and I'm really grateful he took the time to talk to me about training pathways and life after fellowship, because I feel like that's something we don't hear a lot about, and it's nice to get somebody's perspective on what that's been like for them. So to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Laurie Weber. I'm a, uh, well, I'm, I call myself like a gallbladder, liver and pancreas surgeon. And I guess the thing that you call yourself varies depending on your audience. So for a purely surgical trainee audience, I'm a HPV surgeon. But I think we'll probably talk about this in the future. The things that you end up doing in part of your career is not always what you think you're going to be doing in your training. <laughs> um, so some days I'm an upper GI surgeon, some days I'm HPB, some days I'm gallbladder, liver and pancreas. Almost never am I a general surgeon. I did very little pre-set training and I did a lot of post-set training. So I think I've probably got a slightly different career path to a lot of people. Um, but we can get into that if you want to know about my thoughts on career planning and stuff. So, yeah, but I uh, work in um, Western Australia at uh, Fiona Stanley Hospital. Uh, it's our biggest hospital, got 20-something theatres. We've got a robot. We're growing. I work there predominantly public practice, and then I work out at a Hollywood private hospital, which is going to do everything apart from Whipples there. So it's a pretty big private hospital as well, yeah. I have a baby that's 11 weeks old. It's our first baby. <laughs> that's probably the most significant thing in my life at the moment. Um, he's doing very well. His mum's doing well. And yeah, slowly ramping up, going back to work after getting through that process. Oh, well, we all appreciate you coming onto the podcast today and giving us your time. I'm sure you're very busy. No, oh, no, it's an awesome enterprise. Well done you and getting it, getting it rolling. And um, yeah, we didn't, I didn't have this kind of thing to, to prepare. Um, it was very... I don't know, get the occasional taped lecture from GSA kind of emailed to us, but other than that, yeah, it's kind of hard to get other people's opinions. What would you say are your top tips to trainees who are preparing for or about to sit the fellowship exams, so things you wish you might have known before you were sitting? Mm. I mean, I, had, uh, I think I had good advice going into the exam. 
and that really helped me. So the things I, I'm not an organized person. I've never been an organized person, but you, if you're going to try and have some kind of life and also pass this exam, you've got to throw whatever you thought was reasonable out the window in the past and, and become an organized person. So, you know, like a year out, get your act together, work out what you know, which is not going to be very much, um, and then work out how you're going to get through this mountain of work. Your friend and my friend, Carolyn Vasey, you know, says you got to just keep, treat it like eating an elef- elephant one bite at a time. Just work your way uh, through that. And I think that's just all about picking up that knowledge. But I tried to automate as much of my non-surgical life as possible. You're like, you don't want to be getting to two months out from the exam and you've got a stack of unpaid bills and all these kind of crappy life things that just have to keep going. Get everything as streamlined as you can so that you can give it 100%. And so you get you give yourself your best chance of getting through it once. Now, I think the exam, you know, they say they're not out to get you, but I felt like they were out to get me. I feel like there were, you know, the points where you could trip up and some hurdles you had to get through in the in all the elements of the exam. And the advice I give to my trainees, and one of the things that I did was I I really prepared for the the point in the exam when I first realised I didn't know what to do what was going on I didn't know anything about the topic and so when I reached that point it was completely expected and I could just very comfortably say and that's all I know about that you know and you maybe say it two or three times in the exam and it's absolutely fine that's certainly better than getting there and thinking oh I've blown it now because I I don't know about this you know no one no one fails on one or two points I think you to fail people in the exam the examiners have to have the overwhelming feeling that the candidate probably just hasn't done enough work and so I think if you can show them or oh, I had a huge slip up there ask me something else let me show you what I know let me show you what I've worked on you get back in uh, back in the game pretty quickly and they start they'll be like yeah that's we're going to pass you you've obviously completely screwed this up but you've also shown us that you don't deserve to fail mm, so rather than that awkward silence you actually are signposting that you are done and that you just want to move on to the next thing and not be tortured yeah. about that point anymore absolutely yeah and they're always happy to get on like i mean having gone from doing the exam like i'm not a college examiner but i've done you know an examining of medical students so i've done enough exams now that you as an examiner because you've got these candidates coming through and over and over you quickly realize where like the middle is and who and most most of the people around the middle and the ones who are not doing well stand out very quickly and so when someone comes along, makes a huge mistake, and then you think, oh, I actually have to perk up with this person. They're not just going to get an easy pass, but what do I need to do to get them through? So I think examiners probably do want to want to pass us all. It just doesn't always feel like that during the moment. Other top tips? Well, you probably have to hustle some of my recent trainees. I think um, I think just having your yeah, having the way that you like to answer questions really well practiced um, so that when, when you get a little bit of a sniff of a topic that's coming up and they're always going to ask you about all the same topics that you're, you can efficiently get your information out. So, you know, we practiced kind of spiels about all the, all the basic topics over and over and over. And so we were pretty fluent at talking about it. And what that meant for us was that the things that you knew you knew them, you knew them well, and you knew where your line was. And so I could quite confidently talk about breast cancer up until a point where I would just say, and that's it, that's all I know. And I think not, so that's got to be a combination of one, having the commitment to learn the basics, even if it means going back to cellular sometimes, 
and also having the I guess the mental power to say to yourself like I'm not going to get bogged down in the minutiae here it's kind of maybe it's interesting maybe it's exciting but it's not going to get me points that's not a pass fail bit that's like a you know absolute icing on the cake for probably no points don't don't get into it and I often have that when I'm doing shoots with people and they want to talk about some super fine point and I say to them like if you've got to that point you've either already really clearly passed so therefore don't spend any time talking about it or you've you've failed catastrophically because you've probably missed all of the all of the good bits and you've 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 missed out enough bread and butter and you're just talking about this really fine stuff that you probably want to move on so if you ever find yourself talking about something that's super niche like stop using that time yeah it can be easy to go down rabbit holes in the preparation but there's just not enough time if you're trying to cover the whole curriculum it's so broad no it's a super broad exam it's um well it's a general surgery exam and like you know find me a general surgeon that's what i guess i said about my intro but i think we're pretty rare beasts and um it's really hard to train people comprehensively in all aspects of general surgery now so it's not what it used to be you know maybe I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, you, you could do your general surgical exam, you could come out a general surgeon and you could work as a consultant general surgeon probably from that day and pr- do a pretty reasonable job. The Gen Surge Fellowship exam now is basically just another step, probably three quarters on the way to being a consultant. You know, it allows you to get into fellowship, post-fellowship training programs. Well, that leads us in nicely to the next topic we were going to talk about, which was pathways in surgical training. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about yours and what your perspective is on on this. There's a few people who have recently passed the exam and people will be moving on after this year. I'm sure we'll be interested to hear your perspective. Yeah, sure. Well, um, yeah, I have had a really weird path. So I think that I said this to my trainer the other day, if you want to know what the like what the college is going to do in five years' time, just look back what they were doing 10 years ago. So I was the first year of SET. So we went from what we call BST, which was two or three years, and then AST, four years. And they said, no, we're going to scrap it. You're going to be all five years. And I was year one SET, so no one knew what that meant. And then we did that for a few years, and they can SET one recently because they wanted people to do more preset years, which was basically BST again. So that was BST and then four years AST, but they called it set two to five. And now I hear we're going back to set one. So I've always thought that there's probably people in the college who have this great idea about how surgical training should work. And then they work their way up in the college. And when they get to the top, they're like, well, right, now it's time for my idea. Uh, rather than there being like a like some kind of overarching education principle, it's really just no, no. I think it works better when it's two plus four or three plus five. So I I reckon um, pretty early on in my career, I I was really taken by general surgery, so kind of like intern year, and so I managed to do intern uh, RMO and then start training year three, and I did a year. And I really loved it, but I'd been working forever. And so I took a year off and somehow the college agreed to that. I did some traveling, worked a bit overseas and came back and did um, two, three, four, five. And during that time, I did a few country terms and I got pretty keen on country surgery. I guess the, the combination of the being able to be a generalist and live the, I guess, a slightly less hectic lifestyle than your average city surgeon was 
was having. And I think I probably got a skewed view of both camps during that time. You probably, I probably saw what I wanted to see, which was that be a great country surgeon, you could handle any problem living in the country, you do have more time with your family perhaps. Um, and then the view I had of people in the, in the surgeons in the city was very much a uh, like quaternary hospital centric, got to work 80 hours a week, got to be the professor of surgery, you have to kind of ruin your life for surgery. So that was my viewpoint as a trainee and so it wasn't probably that surprising that I was drawn to country surgery. I finished my training after my exam for my last set term, so post-exam but pre-fellowship I went to Darwin, which was just a brilliant job, had a fantastic time, learned a lot there. There was like a senior reg job, which we don't kind of really have anymore. And then I went to Geelong for two years of what was kind of then termed rural surgical fellowship. So there was no formal pathway, but Geelong had been a pretty good training ground for a long time for people wanting to do general country surgery. So I did a year of breast and peds, and then I did uh, the second year doing colorectal and endocrine, after which I moved to Albany, which is about four hours south of Perth in the WA. So I got there, and then I guess the wheels kind of came off work-wise and, and and then I kind of met my now wife and I kind of decided that we probably didn't want to live in a small country town uh, so I had to make some changes so in terms of what happened work-wise I had done a year as a breast fellow you know so doing you know three or four breast lists a week going to MDT doing clinics most of the time operating on like either by myself or under some loose supervision by the consultants doing reconstructions sometimes with plastic, sometimes with the consultants from the breast team. And I thought I had a really good set of training. And when I got there, I could do the breast stuff pretty well. And I'd really focused on what I thought was what you needed to be in a breast surgeon, which was an oncoplastic breast surgery. That was kind of like the, the buzzword. That's what everyone, everyone wanted to train in. And then you go to a country town and no one wants to travel for radiotherapy. We don't have a radiotherapy service there. So you end up just doing other like, you know, wide locals on people who don't want radiotherapy and won't have anything else, or you end up doing a lot of mastectomies without reconstruction. And then the colorectal stuff I did, I'd, I'd done, you know, a good year again of, um, of um, I think, a pretty moderate volume of colorectal surgery, and I felt reasonably well-trained and probably similar for, for endocrine. I did some benign upper GI stuff. So I was doing kind of hiatus hernia repairs as basically, you know, that was the, only, the biggest thing we could do in Albany. And comparing what I was doing there to what was happening in city hospitals, if it's only four hours away and it's not an emergency, I kind of got it in my head that whilst I, was, I thought I was doing a good job of most of these cases, there's almost certainly someone not very far away who could do it a little bit better. And that was one of the thoughts kind of in my mind. Then the hospital had not been doing any of this kind of surgery for a long time. They'd been doing some, you know, some um, minimally invasive colon surgery, but had not put, been pushing any boundaries. And so to be the new young surgeon there and want to push the boundaries, I was just met resistance at every step. Instruments, nurses, training, just had no buy-in, basically. So I then uh, got a... Um, Got an email from Breast Surge Anns, who were the breast body, uh, saying that they'd kicked me out of the breast surge audit, which I'd been contributing to because I hadn't done a breast fellowship. And I kind of wrote back and said, I, I have done a breast fellowship and I've been trained by proper surgeons. I've been to France. I've done the oncoplastic breast course. Like I know what I'm doing. 
Um, and they were like, well, you haven't done our fellowship. It doesn't count. You can't contribute to our audit. So that was just, I guess, a number of little things telling me that, or just kind of take, taking the wind out of my sails, basically. So, you know, you show up or you feel pretty well trained and then a bit of doubt starts to creep in. I had no mentors there that were doing, I guess, things that I was doing. So I was kind of on my own for a lot of this stuff. And then combined with the fact that it just felt like it was time to go back to Perth. So I changed my mindset. I, I did a year as a um, HPB fellow back at Fiona Stanley. So I went from consultant back to fellow. And then during that year, I, I applied and got onto the ANZ HPBA training scheme. And then I did a further six months at Fiona Stanley uh, where I got my ERCP accreditation. And then six months in Royal North Shore in Sydney and a year at Royal Brisbane Hospital. So I guess by that time I was five years of like full-on fellowship which was you know one in three one in four on call and lots of big cases so I felt pretty well trained plus a year as a consultant um, and came back and, and started so that's the pathway so what does that make me think about what people should do as the pathway well I mean I've passed my exams at like 33 and I'm now 40 and I've been a consultant you know HPB surgeon for nearly two years so you can mess around for a long time that would be point number one. So it doesn't matter if you, you know, if you take a bit of time getting onto training, a bit of time getting through training and a bit of time afterwards working out what to do, there's no rush. I'm still looking at, what, 25 years now of doing the same job as an HPV surgeon, so there's plenty of time. That would be point one. Um, I don't, you know, I think I used to think that you kind of had to know your pathway right from the start. And if you're in a hurry, which you shouldn't be, but if you are in a hurry, you've probably got to do that. So if you want to be a really big shot HPV surgeon, you've got to go overseas. You've got to line that fellowship up two or three years ahead. Passing your exam is going to become one of the smallest issues you've got. And then you can either decide that you're just going to become so good at your job that you have to be employed. Yeah, You can go and work wherever you want because you're just brilliant. Or you can kind of work out where you want to work and then do a fellowship that fits that. But I think probably most of us just end up doing something in between. You know, you tailor your training a little bit to a, a location, but you end up being pretty flexible. It's so nice to hear that you didn't really know what you wanted to do because I don't know what I want to do. And it's nice to hear that I'm not the only one and that there are, you know, different pathways and you can find your way eventually. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you've got you to pass your exam. I mean, part, you, you guys will know this, like passing your exam is not about um, being a good surgeon, right? You know, there's probably some terrible surgeons who, who do really well in the exam. There's people who struggle, struggle with the exam but are great surgeons. And so it's a little bit of a different, it's different to real life, yeah? But fellowship training is also different to real life. It's not like you do your fellowship, you get really good at a, a particular thing and then when you go to your final place of work, that thing just arrives on your doorstep in spades you know, like there's a lot of uh, a lot of variables. There's a lot of messing about, um, and you might end up doing something you know completely different, and unexpected. So it's okay to, to to have a very broad set of interests. It's okay to train in a bunch of different things. It's okay to change your mind. It'll just leave you really well rounded. The next thing you mentioned you wanted to talk about was actually getting a job, and how you might go about doing that. Yeah. Right. Well. <laughs> okay. So I guess we spoke a bit about that. Your strategy. 
yeah, this is tricky. There was probably a labor shortage in general surgery in WA for quite a while. And getting on training wasn't that hard and getting a job out the other end wasn't that hard. We're kind of expanding. I think we're getting to the point now, I can't really speak for the rest of Australia, but I think we're training a lot more people than we used to. Um, and I think that's good because I think competition, you know, kind of uh, pushes everyone along a little bit. Um, so getting a job, pathway that I took really was I, I, I talked to the people back at Fiona Stanley and said, I, I, I think I actually do want to do liver and pancreas surgery. How do I go about that? And, you know, is there, is there a prospect of a job for me at the end of it? And that's a, a difficult conversation to have. You've got to have it with the right person. You, you've got to have it with a person who's actually in charge. And then you've got to say, you know, if I'm prepared to go and do this training, what is it going to take for me to get back? So... You know, like after my 18 months at Fiona Stanley, I was probably good enough from a technical perspective and competent enough to have a job there, but I was very much at the level of the training. I feel like I'd maxed it out. So I had to go away for 18 months. I'd be prepared to go away and do that extra stuff to make myself employable so that one, uh, the people there felt like I was bringing back something new and expanding the team. Two, that when placed against, you know, in a competitive application process, they could say we've picked someone with the best training. So that's, uh, that's one pathway to getting a job. The other thing is if you love surgery and you prepared to travel, there's many, many jobs around, you know, and that would be the pathway that I first took. And I hope people that do that have a, like I didn't have a bad experience by any means. It just wasn't right for me in the end. You know, there's plenty of other people that have gone to Albany and had a really wonderful time and ended up staying there. So, you know, if you find a town that needs a surgeon and you go through there and you're training and you think, gee, I could see myself settling here, then you, then you have a, a look at the workforce in that hospital and you think, what do they need, you know, in five years' time? Do they need a, a, someone with a breast interest, a colorectal interest, whatever it is? And then you can tailor your training to fit that. Um, and you can hopefully take someone on that hospital as a mentor and help them guide you through. I think realistically, like post-fellowship training is, is a must. And that's the case for several reasons. I mean, if you put yourself in the position of an, a, an employer, you may have a candidate for a job that you really like that is well-trained in a subspecialty, but um, you have a second candidate who you, who you like almost as much, who's almost as good, that has a piece of paper and it's going to be much easier for someone criticizing that or critiquing that decision to say, um, you seem to have not given it to the person with appropriate qualifications. Do you want to explain yourself to me there? So you've got to go out and get the qualification and you've got to look at what you need to do to get onto that PFET early on. You're talking about the formal training programs in the different fellowship colleges. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to be a subspecialist, colorectal, esophagogastric, HPB or breast surgeon at a quaternary or major referral center, you, you probably need that. And I'm, not, I'm not saying that I wouldn't employ someone without it. I'm saying if you want to give yourself the best chance of getting the job, you probably need that bit of paper. If your goal is to work at a more generalist accepting hospital, then you probably don't need that, but you probably still need a niche. I think you, you need to work out what the criteria your potential employer are going to use to judge you and then make sure you fit. Yeah. Does that make sense? Is it- yeah, it's all really interesting. And I guess this is something that a lot of uh, consultants don't talk about really with us. So it's mm. really interesting hearing your, your no. pathway. I, I mean, probably possibly a little bit like having a baby. If we told you everything about how hard it was, there might be a lot fewer babies, but... Um, <laughs> 
it, it, it's just so different. I think we're all so reluctant to give people advice. We're so comfortable in saying, this is what I did, but it's so hard to give people advice. And, and, and again, you know, to, to say to someone, you're not going to get a job because you don't have a bit of paper, it's complete rubbish. But then if you went and applied for, as a general surgeon, but you hadn't passed your fellowship exam, that's kind of what we're what you'd be doing so it's just a different version of it so yeah it's hard it's in, it is intimidating i guess talking to trainees or it's scary talking to trainees and you think about the saying to people you've, you've you've obviously worked incredibly hard to get where you are you've got these big hurdles still ahead of you and i'm about to tell you that you need to even stack on some more work to that to get where you want to go this isn't the end <laughs> no no and it's but it never ends you know like i'm i'm in my office here and i'm surrounded by uh, unfinished research papers and journal articles that I need to read, which is a bit the way it looked when I was doing my exam. You know, <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe no research papers then, just a lot of like half-written notes. So it doesn't end. No, you just kind of switch your intensity of your, your focus to from you know preparing for exam to you know, being a good surgeon. Well, on that happy note, why don't we talk about getting through the fellowship <laughs> exam so we can move on to the next thing? Yeah. Obviously, your specialty is in HPB, and I have some questions. Yeah, yeah, shoot. So the first one was about colorectal liver metastases. I'm a little embarrassed to say how long it took me to do my episode on colorectal liver metastases. It's quite a complex and, and changing field, I think. Mm. My first question is about liver metastases post-chemotherapy and if they disappear, what you do in that situation? Yeah, sure. Okay. So it's great that the field of colorectal mets is changing because it means that chemo works, right? It's nice to have a little bit of a walk down like history lane. So if you think maybe 30 years ago, people with colorectal mets, they call it, you know, stage four incurable disease, right? And then at that time, chemo didn't really work. And liver surgery was pretty bloody business. Liver surgery was morbid and they didn't really think chemo worked. And so they kind of wrote off everyone with liver mets. And then you jump forward and now we've got not just cytotoxic chemo that is effective and pretty well tolerated by people. We've also now got some, you know, targeted agents against, you know, various different uh, gene profile tumors and, and it works. And so in people with small lesions sometimes they go away completely and there, there have been theories done in the past where people have gone in and chopped them out and looked at well are they dead or not and we used to think from those series that about half the time a complete radiological response meant a complete pathological response so armed with that knowledge you've got to work out you've taken your patient the ideal is to get these patients before chemo right and then you're going to think what am i going to do after chemo and I would never plan to disappear a met, but I would have a plan that if it disappears, this is what I'm going to do. So let me give you a scenario. You've got someone, you know, post-bowel cancer resection, and then they're two years down the track, um, and they have surveillance, and they pop up something, you know, like a two-centimeter um, surface lesion in their left lateral. And they hadn't had chemo before. So they're chemo naive, had a really good prognosis tumor, no negative, but so just bad luck. Have all their staging and it's, it's not biopsied, but it looks like it's most probably a colorectal mat. So if it's two centimeters and it's in the left lateral and it's a you know overnight stay, low morbidity resection, most of us would say, well, that's upfront resectable disease. We're just gonna chop that out. Okay. 
Um, and then whether you give them adjuvant chemo after that is a bit debatable. There's not a great deal of evidence for it, but in someone who's totally chemo naive, they would almost all get chemo. Let's say you've got someone who's got three or four lesions on the right side, all three or four centimeters, pretty bad looking disease, and you're gonna embark on neoadjuvant kind of in them to try and either shrink or control their disease, and it all goes, yeah? So that's a really unlikely scenario for one, and, but this is the kind of thing that people throw me in, like I'm preparing for my exam and I'm wondering what happens if I do this. So it would be really unusual to get a complete radiological response from tumors that, that big. But I think with that disease burden and it's all in one lobe of the liver, you don't need augmentation or anything. It's probably resectable. You know, I would do volume studies and I'd, I'd cut that out, okay? The hardest one is when, say you've got a one and a half centimeter tumor deep in the right lobe sitting on the, like the, the junction of the, the anterior and posterior right pedicle. And uh, you think this necessitates a right hemihepatectomy, but it's a tiny little tumor. So you give them chemotherapy and it goes. What are the possibilities for what's happened there? Well, it's either a complete response that's complete radiologically and complete pathologically, i.e. if you had some way of going in there and whipping it out, there's no viable tumor cells. And that means that there's you know, almost no chance of it coming back. Or it's just a sleep. You put it to sleep with chemo. If it's all gone, you definitely don't want to ch chop it out. If it's just asleep, what's the problem with it waking up? Well, if it waking up and growing just necessitates you doing the operation that you're going to do all along, well, I think surveillance is appropriate in that setting. And when we put this question to a group of HPV surgeons on a, a kind of an online forum, some people said, well, I'll go and ablate it. You know, I'm not going to damage the pedicle doing that. It's far enough away. So we, we burn it, kill it, and we, and, we, and we leave it. And others said we would go and do a right hemi. That was for upfront treatment. And then if it went, if you say it's post-chemo and it's di disappeared, about 50% of surgeons leave them and 50% will go after it. So you can kind of do what you want. Yeah. So that's the rationale, I guess, for, for each. Some people say, well, it's got a 50% chance of coming back, so I'll go and get it. And some say it's got a 50% chance of not coming back, so I won't. So what the problem with them coming back is if they come back and they grow and they become unresectable, obviously you've missed an, a treatment opportunity, which is sad, but that's actually pretty rare. They come back, they come back slowly, you can observe it happening and you can jump in and treat them when you want to. And we don't think that these tumors re-metastasize, right? So apart from maybe some very big colorectal mets. We don't think that they go to the liver, hang around in the liver and then spread elsewhere. I think it's, in fact, it's really rare for most small tumors. So I think it's reasonable to say, so forget everything I've just said, in your exam, a complete radiological response means complete pathological response about 50% um, of the time. And depending on the location of the tumor and the operation required, I'm gonna tailor my, my treatment to that patient. Perhaps if it's a peripheral tumor that's easy to resect, I'd go and, I'd go and resect it. Um, for example, if it's in the left lateral and I know I can do an anatomical resection and definitely get it, you know, that's a good case. If it's deep in the right lobe and it's going to need a whole right hemiapatectomy, take out a lot of liver to potentially take out a completely treated tumor, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to observe them. Does that make sense, that last bit? It makes sense, yeah. And though knowing what the factors are that factor into that decision-making makes it easier to think about how I might apply that to similar questions in the future. 
Yeah, sure. So that's, I mean, that's my whole strategy with this is you gotta, you just got to work out what the important bits are for each, each question and, mm. and then and put, put that back to the examiner. This mm. is how I'm going to make my decision regarding the topic you've just given me. Yeah, mm. these, are the, these things determine the crux of the question for me. Yeah. We had a trainees weekend on this weekend and the chief examiner was talking about how they're trying to model the exam more towards decision-making and um, what you would do for that particular patient rather than sort of broad strokes. So yeah, think, nice. Okay. Yeah, so I think yeah, that's a really yeah. good example of how you could tailor it to the individual. So, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of, chemo, you know, colorectal mess in general, it is a real rabbit hole, as you say, but it's, I guess it's nice to know these things at the end that remain controversial. Yeah, because no one wants to give you an exam topic in the gen surge exam about something that the end, end answer is, well, 50% of people would and 50% wouldn't. So you just need to know where, like, where the clear-cut lines are, right? I would say it's unusual to do a liver operation on a chemo-naive patient unless you're concerned that you're going to get complete disappearance of multiple sites that's going to you know, be high risk for recurrence. Or you're concerned that you're going to, you know, this patient's got a compromised liver and giving them chemo is then maybe going to make them inoperable in the future. So most people are getting at least, at least three months of upfront chemo before we operate. I think the number of people where I've just done an upfront resection, it's really just the synchronous resections. And the best explanation I've heard for that was from one of the guest speakers at a liver conference we have a couple of years ago, and they just like, you know, spouted out like 50 papers that are from multi-center that they've been involved in. And then they just said like, like easy liver, easy bowel, do it together. And maybe, you know, one, one can be hard, but you just can't do too hard. So you're not going to do like an ultra low anterior section and an extended right hemihepatectomy. Yeah. So I would just say in my exam, you know, if it's a, if it's a low risk liver operation, like a left lateral and a low risk bowel operation, like a, a right hemicolectomy, that's a combination that you could do synchronously. Um, but for anything more complex, they're going to have to be staged. And then it's just generally that unless it's symptomatic, we're doing liver first. And not, I think there is a little bit of evidence that it, it probably is better for survival now, but that's all pretty recent evidence. For a long time, it remained pretty debatable. So again, half of the centres will just say, no, we always just get the bowel done out of the way. And then the other half are all, you know, pretty adamant you need to go liver first. As in post-chemotherapy, do the liver operation first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So there's, I guess there's the, there's the scenarios of the, the left and right colon and then the the left and right livers or the, the difficult and easy livers maybe. Um, so for people with, you know, with right-sided tumours, they rarely require neoadjuvant therapy for their primary, whereas people with left-sided tumours, you know, like a lot of rectal cancers are needing neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy. And so for people with rectal cancer that need that, if they've got metastatic disease at diagnosis, we'll typically give them their chemotherapy do their liver while they're recovering from that. When they've recovered, they have the sensitizing chemo for their radiotherapy for their rectum, and then they have their rectum done. That's just like a sensible sequence, and the timeline kind of works. You know, you recover from your liver surgery, you go back on kind of light chemo, you have your radiation therapy, they wait about 12 weeks, and then boom, bowel comes out. For people with right-sided cancers that are completely asymptomatic, again, we'll just get in and sort out the liver first and then the guys can, can come back and the colorectal team can do the bowel. The, one of the beauties of doing minimally invasive liver is that you, I guess, you burn fewer bridges. You know, you 
kind of keep the keep the belly scar free a lot more and it makes it easier to get into subsequent bowel surgery so what chemo would you give well most people are going to get Folfox. some people are going to get cetuximab with that not many people like to give bevacizumab prior to considering liver surgery i think just it's probably more historic than anything but we've had some really bad outcomes with it uh, even though in, there is some evidence that shows that maybe you recover your liver function a little bit better if you've had Avastin. But look, I, I'd just say in general, we kind of avoid those biologicals prior to liver. Yeah. Mm. And I don't think they can give VEGF if a patient's still got the primary in because of the risk of perforation as well. Yeah. That's right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all I had for colorectal meds, unless you think there's something else that trainees usually get stuck on and ask you a lot of questions about. How is it going to work in the exam, right? They're going to show you a scan with a liver absolutely full of METs, in which case you can say, look, I think this is just frankly unresectable disease and I think this patient is going to you know, be best treated with, with palliative chemotherapy. And I guess the only sticking point there might be, or the, the only reason that would become an exam question is they say this patient has been you know, discussed at your meeting and someone suggests a liver biopsy. And so why would we allow, why would we suggest a liver biopsy in that case? Well, if we're never going to go to resection, then that's a situation in which we think a liver biopsy doesn't upstage the disease. It doesn't give them the risk of seeding. But I think all in all, that's an unlikely question for your exam. I think more likely you're probably going to have upfront resectable disease and you'll just have to look at the distribution in the liver and say, you know, these are all to the right of the middle hepatic vein. I think this patient could be have a cleared liver with a right hemihepatectomy. In general, they've got de novo metastatic disease. We're going to give them chemotherapy in a neoadjuvant setting and then perform a right hemihepatectomy. They might then say, do you know any of the risks of of liver surgery and that's when you, you, you need to you know r- rattle those off about you know the early risks of bleeding and then what is the risk of li- liver failure and then how do you reduce the risk of liver failure because they want to talk about liver volumes yeah so in really general terms you know most of us will probably tolerate resection of, of nearly 80 percent of their liver so you can have a 20 percent remnant and still survive but if you've had chemo or you've got damaged liver, it's probably more like 30 or 40. So that's just on pure volume. So you might be able to look at that scan and say, you know, I would ask them to assess the volume of the remnant liver, which in this case is the left liver. And if it's less than 30%, I'd say they'd be at higher risk of liver failure. So we might want to augment the growth of the left liver. Examiner says, how might you do that? Well, I've heard about portal vein embolization. Yeah, I think that's absolute icing on the cake end of topic kind of stuff i think in your for this exam it's really going to be about um, looking at the scan saying you know i think that these have got features of colorectal metastases this patient's obviously got a colorectal primary this is how i'm going to stage the disease Um, and this this is these are the things i'm going to use to decide my treatment plan Mm. with your staging for colorectal liver mets would you routinely do like an mri and a pet scan or would you be happy to go off the ct scan if someone just has a new diagnosis of bowel cancer, but then I think just a CT chest and abdomen is, is all that's required to exclude systemic disease. But then once you've got the suspicion of something in the liver or it looks like a liver met, then we typically do stage them with an MRI and a PET. The role of MR is that in, in about 10 to 20% of people, it picks up things the CT doesn't. So it upstages the disease. So, you know, a lot, there are colorectal mets that are CT occult but MRI visible 
the typical contrast agent we use is Primovist. Mm-hmm. I think I probably, I remember trying to learn about this before my fellowship exam as well, it confused me, but um, you know, you have regular gadolinium, which is a MR contrast agent. And then you have Primovist, which behaves a bit like gadolinium, but is also hepatically excreted. And the benefit of it over gadolinium on its own is that because of that hepatic excretion, if you scan 20 minutes after administration, normal hepatocytes would have started to take it up. So at 20 minutes, if there's, if there's a hole in the liver or a black spot in the liver on the Primovis scan, you know there's no normal hepatocytes in there. So you can kind of exclude atypical appearing benign things and say this is probably a colorectal met based on the, uh, its absence there. Um, it also gives you a nice MR cholangiogram because of that. And so you can plan your, you know, how you're going to handle the hilum of the liver depending on what side you have to do. And again, the, the benefit is that if it's a FNH, it will eventually excrete via its shitty ductal system. And so, you, it, it, you know, FNH is classic on Primo this scan. So in your exam, you know, when they say, um, you know, what, what kind of scan are you going to order for colorectal match? You're going to say, I'm going to do a Primo Vist MRI to you know, determine if there's any CT occult mets. Um, and if they ask you a question about, is this an a benign liver lesion is, you know, this is a 20-year-old woman on the pill, is it an adenoma, is it FNH? You can say, again, I'm going to use Primovis to see if there's any normal excreting hepatocytes in this and see if it's got a classic appearance for FNH on the scan. In terms of PET scan, yeah, so FDG PET has become routine in some centres for staging colorectal mets. Does it improve survival? Probably not, but it may prevent you operating on people in a slightly futile sense. But where are you looking for disease if it's if it's not visible on a ct chest and it's not in the liver because you're staging that with the mr anyway and you've got no bulky lymph nodes on the ct you know kind of where are you looking for it and you might be looking for bone disease but i, I reckon the utility of pet is probably coming down as all of our other scans get better and uh, people with colorectal meds die when they run out of liver unfortunately you know, they run out of chemo options and their liver gets carried away. They don't generally die of extra hepatic disease. Going back to the comment you were making about the volumes in the future liver remnant. Yeah. I know that there are some pretty unusual tests I haven't really seen in clinical practice to look at the function of the liver. Do you ever do those mm. or do you really just look at, you know, how much chemo have they had? What other risk factors for liver damage do they have? Um, you know, do they have any gross evidence of cirrhosis or liver failure to make your assessment about whether you're going to leave 30 or 40 or 20 percent? Yeah, sure. So, yes, we do. I do You routinely use a, a test called 99 technetium mebrofenin imaging, which is a functional liver test. So it's really cool. Basically, you... You do a nuclear med study that looks at the hepatic uptake and excretion of a tracer. And it shows you a picture of that in the regions of the liver. And then they do a CT scan and fuse them. And then they work out the total liver mebrofenin uptake. And then the percentage that's in your remnant part. And then they give you a number based on body surface area and I think weight that shows that, that gives you basically a threshold of 2.7. So that comes out as the magic number. So if you've got a mebrofenin level of 2.7 or more in your remnant, you're extremely low risk of liver failure. Now, the benefit of that over other tests or over volume alone is that sometimes you have volume that doesn't do much. And sometimes you have um, a little bit of liver that's working really hard. 
So it, it's a much better kind of qualitative assessment of the regions of the liver and what they're doing, especially in the setting of a really big tumor. So if you've got a big tumor occupying the right lobe, that tumor is not doing anything functionally. So maybe the left has started to, to grow a little bit and do a bit more of the heavy lifting. And so your left, you do your mebrofenin study and it shows you the left is going to be fine. So, so yes, we do use a, like a functional study. So you can do ICG clearance, you can do mebrofenin. And I think going forward, we'll probably do this in all high risk livers. We've got our liver failure rate really low by using these kind of tests and not just using volumes alone. Um, you guys don't need to know about that. I think you just need to know they exist. Yeah. So the options would be if in, you know, in Australia, ICG or mebrofenin, M-E-B-R-O-F-E-N-I-N. And then, yeah, for the exam, you know, leaving people with a remnant of less than 30 is probably unsafe. 30 to 40 is probably okay in you know, a normal liver and then you need a good remnant and you probably need a functional assessment in someone with a damaged liver, which is either you know, extensive chemotherapy. When you talk about cirrhosis and liver failure, just to, I might just, the question that I really couldn't figure out before the fellowship, so when do you operate on people with HCC and cirrhosis? Yeah, this is really hard, hey, because there's this whole like the, the Barcelona liver BLC or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so that is really conservative and we actually operate on heaps more people than that, okay? So people without cirrhosis, you can look at their HCC and think, well, this is just like any other liver cancer I've got to chop out. Unless it's widespread multifocal, you can probably have a go at it surgically if they're non-cirrhotic. If they've got cirrhosis, so basically the worst they can be is child's pew A and then to, to do a safe operation on them, the the cutoffs that I've seen used is that they've got to have a platelet count over 100 and they can't really have any evidence on the scan of clinically significant portal hypertension. So if they've got a huge spleen or massive varices and, or platelets of under 100, you can just say, look, it's probably not safe to do surgery in this person. Not only is it not safe, it's probably not useful because this person's already got a pretty bad liver. So operating on them is probably dangerous, but also the prognosis from just their liver disease alone is pretty poor. Yeah. So these people, you know, obviously if they've got, whether they're in criteria, they're probably better treated with transplant because it fixes their cirrhosis as well as fixing their, their tumor. Um, if they're outside transplant criteria, that's when we might, you know, might think about some other options in terms of trying to do local regional therapies with either um, CERT or, or TACE or ablation if they're small things. Yeah. So that's just having in your mind, like, you know, when do you operate on people with HCC? Well, you know, solitary HCCs in non-serotics that you can generally go for it. If there's one or two lesions, we don't, maybe that's not truly multifocal. You might be able to do more than one resection or if they're all combined in one area. But once you've got cirrhosis, you know, these are the, you know, these are my hard cutoffs. They've got to have a plate of over hundred and they can't really have mm. portal hypertension. Portal hypertension in general seems pretty bad for any liver surgery. It's a bit of a no-no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it makes it very t- difficult, yeah. They asked in the exam, I think, last year about resectability of a hyalur cholangiocarcinoma. Right. So even though I sort of thought that'd be a bit off limits, I think resectability of pancreatic cancer is something that clinically we talk about a lot, and I'm wondering if you wanted to talk through your um, approach to that. Yeah, I mean... Um We'll talk. About, well, let's uh, let's talk quickly about that hyalur problem then, because they may throw it up two years in a row. But and then it could be because it's kind of similar to the discussion with colorectal. So, 
we didn't talk about this, but the, I guess criteria for resectability and colorectal metastases, again, there's an evolution to this. Like maybe people would just take out just one met and then we started to push it and we got to the point where you could people said you could take out up to seven. And then a few years ago, we kind of threw that out and said, it's not about what disease you've got, it's about what remnants you've got left. Okay, so we've spoken a little bit about volume saying, you know, in a super healthy liver, young person, maybe you'll live in 20%, but most people are going to be in the 30s and then people with chemo above 40. But then the, I guess the technical definition is that you need at least two neighboring segments as your remnant with adequate inflow and outflow. So that can be, you know, segments two and three with the left hepatic vein between them. It's, that's nice if, that's, if the volume's okay. So essentially, if you're taking everything on the right and then taking four, you're doing extended right, but also you can do an extended left and just leave them with six and seven with the right vein there sitting on the front of it and adequate inflow and outflow. And you can take the sides off. So you can take out you know, two and three and four and you can take out six and seven, just leave them with five and eight if they're, if they're big enough. So you can do all kinds of wacky things like this, but what we generally don't do is leave people with kind of one segment in one spot. So two neighboring segments with adequate volume with preserved inflow and outflow. So for hyalocalangio, there's a, a pretty complex staging system that says about, you know, which side does it go up and then does it involve artery and doesn't involve vein on that side as well as involving ducts. And I think you can have a kind of similar thing in your mind, right? So for most hilar cholangiocarcinomas, if it's invaded into the common hepatic artery or the main portal vein, most people would say that's a bit of a no-no. If it's got nodal disease, you're not going to win there. Okay, so if you do a PET scan and there's hot nodes everywhere, no good. So it has to be very much localized disease. And unfortunately, they invade vessels quite quickly. So let's say it doesn't involve any vessels, but it's kind of sitting right in the hilum. Can you just take out the hilum and leave a whole lot of ducts? Well, yes. You know, people have done a kind of a hilar resection and they ended up with a, you know, two ducts on the left and then the duct from five, eight, and you end up with about, you know, eight ducts and you end up kind of stitching onto the hilar plate. So rather than doing actual duct anastomosis, you end up kind of doing what they do with kids with biliatresia. That's a shit operation. So you end up most of the time for hyalars, you look at which side it's going and then you go the other side. You know, so if it's invading a little bit more up the right, then you plan to do an extended right, just leave them with two, three. You know, you need your, your left portal vein going into that um, and you take off all the other branches uh, and you can even sew onto those, the two and the three duct. That's if you've got no vascular invasion, you just go to the side that has less invasion of tumor and you need to get a clear margin, okay? If you've got vascular invasion, that's when it gets a bit tougher because if it's if it's gone on the same side as the tumor, you know, say say it's gone into the right anterior ducts, it's started in the hilum, it's gone to the right anterior ducts, they're all blown. The left, you think you've got the longest distance from the tumor, that's where you're going to do your join. But then somehow the tumor is knocked off the left artery. But then you've got kind of bilateral disease, one in the duct department, one in the artery department, or if the if the left artery but the right vein. Is, has been narrowed and you know that again that's kind of that bilaterality is what gets you so the only times when i've done vascular resections for these is when it's taken out the actual hilum and the right side and it's come into the right vein and it kind of encroached 
onto the, the bifurcation of the right and left portal vein and have actually just resected that point and joined the left portal vein to the main vein. And that's surprisingly not as bad as you think to do that. Yeah. Uh, and the artery was free the whole way. And when you say free, no abutment, like there's a plane between the tumour and those structures. Yep. So um, cholangio is a sticky, nasty tumour. So once it gets onto that artery, like it's, it's pretty clear surgically, you're not going to get it off. I feel like it behaves a little bit differently when you have pancreas cancer that's kind of got that perineural invasion that can be into those nerves around the artery, but you can still strip it off the artery. Whereas with the cholangios, I think once they kind of get nastily into it, it's a bit, a bit more stuck. So that's, you know, I guess, a, a quick update on or how to talk about high-like cholangios. So, you know, which, again, the examiner wants to hear when, you know, when just, we're making decisions about resectability of high-like tumors, the first thing is systemic staging because a lot of these patients present with advanced disease. So once I've excluded uh, systemic metastases uh, and I've excluded nodal disease, I then can pay attention to the resectability of the primary tumor. The things that influence my decision-making is the degree of involvement into the ductal system, how far up the biliary radicals it goes, and involvement of the artery and the hepatic artery and the, the portal vein. And I'm thinking, my thought is that I need to get the widest margin from the tumour uh, with adequate inflow to my remnant. Rarely that involves arterial resection. Sometimes it involves venous resection. Although, you know, it's fair to say in Australia that a lot of people would say with, you know, with arterial invasion, it's unresectable disease. Now, that does probably segue nicely into pancreatic cancer. So, Again, we used to talk about, um, I guess, pancreatic cancer being resectable or unresectable. And unresectable used to mean it was touching the vessels. And so we've been gradually getting more and more radical in that. And that's taken, you know, 20 years or probably 30 years now. I think in the 90s, they kind of started publishing the first series of portal vein resections with reasonable survival. And it kind of become clear that you can, you can resect the portal vein and that you probably can resect bits of the hepatic artery, but it's still the case that worldwide resecting the SMA is a bad idea. There's a few select centers that get good results. It's mainly with total pancreatectomy, okay, because there's no risk of leak and then the SMA exploding. Um, so it's not something that's commonly done, and I'm not sure there's many places in Australia who do SMA resections on the reg. So what constitutes resectable disease? You know, I think in your... In your explanation of this, you can say, you know, tumors that have no effacement of the vascular structures and, and no evidence of metastases and no nodal disease that's evident, then they're completely resectable. You know, patients may have lymphadenopathy that's within the resection field of a Whipple's, and that's still technically resectable disease. And then patients may start to have a degree of venous and arterial involvement. And then people put the posts of where does resectable hit to be borderline and when does borderline hit to be locally advanced or unresectable and those posts are in variable locations depending on which guideline you look at so if you just look at like the um, nccn guidelines they're just going to call it resectable borderline and unresectable and the point of all this, or well, guess, what what are we driving at here? It's not it's not actually so much can you can you get it out, because even in even in series of locally advanced or unresectable cases, you can still get the tumor out. 
it's what is the likelihood looking at that CT scan that doing this operation is going to get you an R0 or get you an R1 or get you an R2, okay? Because we know that R2 is probably worse than nothing. R1 is fractionally better than nothing and probably not any better. And R0 is significantly better than doing nothing. So you want to know, based on looking at that scan, what is the likelihood of an R0 resection? And if you look at someone who's got no evidence on the scan of venous invasion, you know, the tumor's well away, it's still in the best series, it's still only about 80%. And most places that do a combination of resectable and borderline or you know, gray area resectable, their R0 rate is between 60 and 80%. And that's with a that's an R naught one millimeter. So in a, in Australia and Europe, we tend to say you need a millimeter free of tumor. In the states, they're kind of starting to come around to that, but they'll still call like no tumor on the on the ink R naught. But we 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 don't want to go for that millimeter. So what does that mean? Like borderline? Where's the where's the difference between borderline and locally advanced? Well, let me mess your mind up a bit with this. There have been several trials where they looked at the final outcomes of, of borderline cases and locally advanced cases who went to resection. And in some trials, they found that the resectability was higher in the locally advanced cases than the borderline cases. Okay? So what that tells you is that CT is not very good at determining resectability. It's probably the best we've got, but it's still not very good. So how does that affect clinical decision-making in this? And, and how is this going to become relevant in the exam for you guys? For tumors that have a reconstructable vein, so not an obliterated vein, but a reconstructable vein, you're probably going to call them borderline resectable. For tumors that abut an artery, and that means less than 180, and you're going to be able to peel it off without leaving them with all the nerves stripped from their artery, which leaves you, you know, potentially with severe diarrhea if you take all the nerves around the SMA or requiring to do a hepatic arterial resection, which is pretty morbid. So they're still going to, they're going to be borderline, but anything more than that, you guys are going to call locally advanced. Okay. How does that affect a treatment strategy? So is there a role for neoadjuvant chemotherapy in resectable pancreas cancer? Now, this is a big debate, right? Some centers have jumped on this five years ago and they're still giving everyone upfront chemo to all comers. Um, the rationale being... One, you avoid resecting the people who are going to progress rapidly because to survive pancreas cancer, you either need to be incredibly lucky that at the time of diagnosis and surgery, you have no METs, which is really rare because almost everyone has METs at diagnosis because by 10 years, almost everyone's dead of metastatic disease. Okay, So that's the minority. So the majority have got METs. So how do you survive pancreas cancer with METs? You have chemosensitive disease, you complete chemo and you complete surgery. So if you take people, all comers, assume they're all metastatic, even though you haven't seen it on your scan, you want to give them systemic therapy first. And that way, after three months, they've got widespread METs. You know that they're just not a chemosensitive patient. And so doing a, a big resection for them is not going to change their outcome. So you get rid of those people. The second rationale after better selection is that you have a high number of people completing the whole package. So if you do operate on people who are resectable, even in the best centers, 60 to 80% of people will get to chemo after surgery. So 20 to 40% of people never get well enough after surgery to have chemo. If you give chemo up front in the trials, which is not real life, but in the trials, you know, 90 to 95% of people with resectable disease go, go on and get an operation. 
Okay, so it's probably better in terms of completing the package. Mm. In terms of downstaging, and that's, I guess, the third argument, it's hard, that one, because, as I said, CT is not a great predictor. So often people with you know, relatively advanced-looking tumours, we might give them chemo thinking, oh, if it downstages, it'll get a bit easier. But in the centres that routinely resect advanced cancers, they give chemo and operate really regardless of whether or not they see downstaging on the scan as long as they don't see progression. Mm. We, in our MDT recently, have had a few cases where there was really no difference on the repeat CT and the regular just say that often you don't see any change even though it'll, you know, when you resect it, probably increase the likelihood of an R0 resection. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So that's, I guess that's the idea where that you, you have to suddenly have change your mindset, well, what's that scruff around the artery now? Is it cancer still or is it treated cancer or is it just inflammation? Was it ever cancer? Was it, was it always just inflammation? Who knows? So, so, so that's resectable. So that's the rationale behind upfront chemo and resectables. For borderlines, I think you just need to think about it as though it's a worse prognosis tumor and all of those arguments apply a bit more. So more people are going to fall off the wagon because they've got worse cancers to begin with. You are probably going to get more people through the whole package and you may downstage a few more. And do we resect locally advanced cancers in, in Australia? Well, in Sydney, they talk a bit about being centres for arterial resection. In, you know, in the time I was there, we didn't do any. In Brisbane, I know they did a few in the time before I was there, but then they've kind of gone away from doing it. It's an enormously resource-intense procedure with incredible potential morbidity for a disease that's very, very morbid and, and probably going to be fatal within a year or two. So I don't think it's all that sensible at the moment. Well, I went to um, Mayo Clinic on like a visiting observership after my fellowship and they were, you know, regularly there doing vein and artery resections, but it's a totally different thing, right? They've got these patients that have all had like a year of chemo and haven't progressed and the way they do the operation is different. They're often doing total pancreas. They do kind of on-block arterial resection and then graft the artery and vein in. Like it's a, to- it's a totally different procedure. It's not just like an extension of a Whipple. It's like a, a whole new vascular procedure. So I don't think it's the kind of thing we're going to be offering in the very near future. Does that clarify pancreas a little bit for you? Yeah, that's great. And the other thing I read about staging or resectability of pancreatic cancer was the concept of tumor biology and maybe looking at the CA199. Like if it was very high, that that might be an indication there's more likely to be micrometastatic disease and you might give neoadjuvant in that situation. But I hadn't really seen that factored in at my institution. Sure. Yeah, so we've just talked about anatomical borderline. MD Anderson came out with the, the ABC concept for their borderline resectables. So they talk about people anatomically being borderline. That's the A stuff I talked about artery vein, where's the tumour? And then B for biology, which is essentially CA199 level. Uh, And then C being basically patient fitness. You could have a completely resectable tumour and a CA199 of 50, but you've got really bad heart disease. And they say, well, they're a bad C. And that's the way they were to discuss them. Bad A, bad B, bad C. In terms of the utility of CA199, not everyone expresses it. So some people will have bad cancer, normal CA199. For those that do express it, it probably does correlate with disease burden. If CA199 is less than 150, a staging laparoscopy is probably not useful in terms of checking unless they've got another reason to do a staging lap. And then if you're going to take your borderline group and you're going to, you want to know who get the best 
outcomes after resection, it's those, as you say, with a sustained fall in CA199 and a sustained pet response. So if you're going to potentially do something really morbid to someone, like a Whipple's with a big vein resection and or artery resection in a big American center, they'll do their pet, they'll do their CA199, they'll give them three months of therapy, they'll recheck them. If they're down, that's good. They'll probably push on for six months. And if, if they've got a CA199 that goes from 10,200 back to 5,000, they're probably not going to offer them a super radical resection. And we kind of tend to do the same. So I, I will check CA199 through therapy and monitor it. Uh, and it is useful for monitoring disease response. I, I've, I've had a lady, you know, who had a, had a year, not a year, but maybe nine months of therapy, you know, chemo after three months, still looked bad, did another three months of chemo, then did chemo rads. And her tumor looked great. Tumor response looked great, but her CA199 was always in the thousands. And she's she recurred within a few months of surgery despite having an R0 resection. So as you say, she's probably got occult micrometastatic disease and now she's popped something up in the liver that we're not sure to, how, how we're going to deal with it. But think about a determination of resectability in the ABC, A being anatomy, B being you know, biology of the tumor, and then C being the patient characteristics. Great. Thank you. It leads us into my last real question, which is about the Whipples. So it's in our operative yeah. nose. Obviously not the operative does. I won't be able to say I can do one of those before my exam. But they have asked a few questions um, in the last few exams about operative nose cases in the operative vibers and just knowing the principles and okay. broad steps yeah. of the operation. Yeah. For a lot of our trainees might not have seen one. Could you take us through what you think a general surgeon should know about the broad concepts or steps of the Whipples? Yeah, sure. Okay. So this is a scenario in which you do want to have your preamble of, you know, in an appropriate stage worked up a consented patient. And for me, you know, appropriate staging includes a set of blood tests, a, a, a pancreas protocol, CT scan to assess resectability, usually a PET scan to assess distant spread, although I recognize that's controversial and not done in all centers. Um, I would, you know, um, counsel the patient pre-op preoperatively and essentially always meet with a family member and discuss with them the risks which include mortality of you know one to two percent depending on the sensor that you're working in and major morbidity up to 20 percent um, and the risk of a, a prolonged hospital stay and then in terms of the operative um, steps you consider what you think the risk of occult metastatic disease is and in most patients who have had chemo for a long time I still put a laparoscope in and, and have a look and I think it's reasonable as a, you know as, as a, a operative nose to know that people will do you know re-look laparoscopy to avoid an open shut laparotomy in a patient who's psychologically suffering with the, the diagnosis of a very morbid disease. And then in terms of access, you can either do a rooftop incision or a midline. It doesn't matter. You can go jump from Sydney to Brisbane and it'll change. Do a, you know, a broad rooftop incision. I used a fixed retraction system because you need hands to assist at a Whipple. You need people to hold things. You don't need people to hold wound edges. Yeah. Um, you then do a thorough laparotomy. And what do I mean by that? You examine and feel the liver. You check the lesser sac for nodes, you feel the tumor, you feel is it fixed to any structures, you inspect the infracolic compartment and you inspect the peritoneal cavity to exclude peritoneal mets. And most importantly, you know, you look in that infracolic, look at the, the DJ flexure at that SMA root and is there cicatrization? Because you know that if you come infracolic and it's really tucked in there, this is probably not going to be a resectable tumor. Yeah. 
And then I guess broadly the steps are extended cockerization of the of the right colon, if not a complete cattle brash maneuver. So most of the time I will mobilize the right colon and then completely mobilize the duodenum. You need to go medial enough that you see that left renal vein if that takes you to the SMA route. One of the reasons that you've got to get behind, or I think you get behind first, is that when you are dissecting from the front on the portal vein or SMV and you injure something, if you have your hand behind, you can kink forward rather than just press down. And that kinking forward means that with your left hand behind the SMV, you can occlude it, still see the hole to stitch. Yeah. So after that full cockerization, then the, I guess the sequence is entirely up to you, but the things that need to be done is that need to get into the lesser sac and dissect down between the gastroepiploic and the middle colic. There's usually a little crossing vein there that you need to take. You need to mobilize the tunnel at the bottom on the SMV and the tunnel at the top, and usually you've got to take the GDA before you can get to the tunnel at the top. You can take the gallbladder down whenever you want, but that helps you get around the bile duct. Um, and you essentially will do all of these steps, I think, taking whatever's easy and whatever's coming easily before doing anything irreversible. So once you've proven that you can get through the tunnel, that you can get around the GDA, that you're around the bile duct, you've got it fully mobilized and you think, right, well, we can start to do irreversible things, then you can divide the stomach. And I usually divide it at the angularis, so I don't do a pylorus preserving. Take the vessels on the greater arcade, the lesser, divide it with a stapler, flip it over, that gets you good access to the pancreatic neck. You take the GDA, you open up your tunnel, you cut through the pancreas and just use a diathermy. I've never had any requirement to use anything other than a diathermy. Sometimes the pancreas bleeds. You may want to have a stitch ready to, to stitch the bleeding pancreas. There's usually a vessel at the top and the bottom and you avoid stitching the duct. Once you've got that done, you then just need to turn your attention to the uncinate dissection. So most people will divide the jejunum and then take the vessels off the jejunal wall, uh, right down almost to the DJ flexor, then deliver that specimen to the right, and then with lateral traction on the head of the pancreas and kind of medialization of the uh, mesocolon and the SMV, to expose and kind of roll through the uncinate process. And then you start to divide little branches there, looking for essentially uh, preservation of the first jejunal branch, which is kind of what we call J1V, and then taking all the mesoprancus from there up to the, up to the root of the SMA. So taking the uh, nerves off the right side of the artery. There will be branches there and most of the time, the first vessel that comes out posterior on the SMA is like a little uh, anchor shaped trunk. So it'll have a little st strut going down then the IPDA will go to the right and the uh, first jejunal will go to the left. And so sometimes you end up actually taking that trunk off. Sometimes you can actually just take the IPDA and then you follow that up to the root there and then you, you've taken everything off the GDA and you need to do your, your portal lymphadenectomy. I guess that completes the dissection phase. The key points there is that you don't do anything irreversible until you've determined resectability, that most people get tripped up, you know, or the, the times that you can get real problems is bleeding in the tunnel. So dissecting out that portal vein tunnel must be very gentle, that you can go an awful long way in your dissection before dividing anything if you really want to. Um, and that the uncinate dissection or that mesopancreatic dissection really determines your margin. And that has been described in terms of how close you get to the SMA 
And for, you know, for real pancreatic cancer, uh, my dissection's on the adventitia of the SMA in a hemicircumferential fashion. For benign things, you might, you might stay a little further away from the SMA. So then um, the reconstruction, you can do, most people will do pancreas first, I think because it's the most fickle anastomosis and also you don't want to do your bile duct and then do your pancreas and then realize that for some reason you've got to redo your pancreas and then you've got to take down the bile duct. So pancreas first, there's a, a worldwide debate as to whether PG or PJ is better. I've only ever done PJ, I've only ever seen PJ. I think you should do what you're trained in. So in this fake scenario in the exam, you're going to say to them, I haven't done either, but I recognize you can do both. And the principles are duct to mucosa anastomosis. That's the buzzword. Yeah. So duct to mucosa anastomosis of the pancreas. I do the Blumgart technique, which is the buttressing sutures and then a duct to mucosa anastomosis and then anastomosing the bile duct. As a general surgeon, you need to be able to do hepaticojejunostomy. You need to have like a safe technique for doing it, not to fix your own bile duct injuries, but just because it's, I think it's an essential skill. So I do that on a single limb, pancreas, bile duct, and then around, and then it's to stomach, and I just staple it to the back of the stomach. So I do a longitudinal posterior gastrojejunostomy. You then put drains. Most people will put a nasogastric tube or a nasogeginal feeding tube or a combination of both. And so I'm up. Yeah. Make it um, sound so easy. Well, yeah, it's not. It's never. It's never easy. Um, just varying types of of uh, of hard. I think it's nice that it's getting more common and more centralised. And the, I guess some of the terror has gone out of it. You know, I guess in hospitals where they were doing three or four a year, it was a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, ten a year is a huge deal. But we're we're, we're going to do fifty this year at Fiona Stanley. Which make us, you know, one of there's only a few high volume institutions in Australia, and when, when you've got fifty a year going to ICU and then going to the ward, the wards and ICU, it gets very routine. Everyone knows what a Whipple that's doing well looks like, and that makes the ones who are struggling stand out, and that makes it safer. There was one other question I had about bile duct injuries, talking about a bile duct to jejunal anastomosis. Sure, oh, yeah, yeah. So how do you avoid them? How do you pick them up? How do you fix them? How do you get out of trouble? So they used to say everyone will do a bile duct injury, um, and I think it's a kind of sad reality. You just want to make sure you do it in someone with bad pathology, okay? So I've injured the bile duct once with someone essentially they're gallbladder was kind of obliterated into their bile duct in the end we never found a gallbladder we just found a kind of hole in the bile duct i don't think we even found a distal end to the bile duct but that they needed a hepaticojejunostomy and that's really you know tragic and then i you know wish it hadn't happened like that and um you know how would i have avoided it well it was really distorted anatomy and they needed a more up-to-date scan before operating on them but it would have changed everything but the general bile duct injury, unfortunately, occurs in the young or the healthy patient with a skinny bile duct, right? It's not in the horribly pathological Maritzi syndrome where there's already a hole in the duct. So how do you avoid that? Well, you need to start your dissection on the gallbladder and stay on the gallbladder. So many people will learn the technique because they start with easy gallbladders that you lift up the fundus, you pull out where you think the gallbladder cystic duct junction is, and then you kind of bluntly make your triangle. So 
don't make the triangle, have the triangle presented to you. So you need to do that same move, but rather than guessing where you think that junction is, you take the peritoneum off the gallbladder and you incise between liver and what is definitely gallbladder, what can only be gallbladder, and then you come down and you peel that gallbladder wall away and you let everything in Callow's triangle stay with the patient, all the fibro fatty tissue, until you get to the point where the bit that you're on can only be the cystic duct and then you follow that for as short as you need to be able to get around it. Yeah, Somewhere in that fibro fatty triangle is going to be the artery, which you'll deal with with some clips. Uh, bleeding from the cystic artery, if you prang it doing this, you know, it sometimes takes more clips, sometimes takes a stitch, but the difference being if you pull up and pull out and plunge, if you go either through the bile duct with that initial move or you sway the whole bile duct out, which is the classic injury, isn't it, where you ligate it completely, that's, that's a tragedy. Um, so the scenarios in which you'll encounter, I guess, is your, your registrar is just a bit lost and they call you in and they haven't done much dissection and the planes aren't clear and you're not sure where you are and you're not sure what you need to do. So then you need to think, why am I, why am I here? Who am I? Why am I here? What am, why am I doing this operation? So if that patient's you know, profoundly unwell with awful cholecystitis or they're jaundiced or there's something crazy going on and you just need biliary decompression, then cut a small hole in the gallbladder, put a Foley catheter in and send them to a hepatobiliary surgeon. So that's kind of that scenario. If you just if you just cannot figure it out, if you think you figured it out and you're kind of dissecting down and you think, oh, I'm really not confident here that I can go any further. I think I'm leaving a fair bit of gallbladder behind. Then open the gallbladder laparoscopically, put all the stones in a little bag, keep working away inside the gallbladder until you get the stone out that pops out, and then the bile comes back, which means you've got the last stone, and then you can do a subtotal. Then just put a an attempt at stitching the cystic duct shut, but leave it drain, expect bile leak for three to five days, it'll then dry up, that's fine. I would rather do 100 remnant cholecystectomies, of which I think I've done about 15 now, where someone is bailed out, left a bit of gallbladder, even left some stones, or sent me half a gallbladder operation. I'd honestly rather do 100 or 1,000 of them than one bile duct reconstruction. If you do end up with a hole in the bile duct, then that's that kind of exam scenario of what's, you know, what, what, are, what are my resources, what are the hospital's resources, and what's this patient like, and where can I, you know, where's help coming from? So if you're in that scenario where you're in the small country hospital and a colleague calls you in and neither of you are hepatobiliary surgeons, but they were doing a cholecystectomy and they think they've divided the bile duct, uh, what do you do? Well, in the best centers, when you do an elective hepaticojejunostomy, there's still a stricture rate. If you just divided this patient's bile duct, they're li likely that you've diathermied through it, and it's likely that uh, they're going to get a stricture. You don't want that on your books. You want to send it to an evil hepatobiliary surgeon like myself who happily you know, take them on and fix them and then deal with the, the problems to follow. So there's no problem then with sticking a drain up in the bile duct so that it just comes out of the liver into your drain. Stick a drain on the other end if you want as well and package the patient up and send them for help. So what will, what will we do? What does a hepatobiliary surgeon do when receiving a patient like that? We always get a CT scan because when you're lost, you're lost. And even when people say they haven't done this or that, sometimes they have and they just don't know. So the clips that you thought were on the cystic artery are actually on the right hepatic artery. So if you've got a divided right hepatic and you've got a, you know, a bad hilar 
injury, then you know sometimes you're thinking, is this right liver going to survive? Usually we still leave it alone and we do we join onto it. It's rare to resect it up front, but then you know going forward, you're you know potentially you know, that right liver is going to atrophy or potentially get abscess in it, and you might end up needing to do an operation there. So we get the scan to kind of plan and map and then work out you know how big and bad the hole is. For side holes, let's talk about T-tubes, okay? So in the past, when people dealt with duct problems, it was kind of a no-no to stitch up the bile duct. So when you, when you did a cholidocotomy and extracted stones, you never stitched up the bile duct, you stitched a T-tube in and let it fistulate to the skin, remove the T-tube, the fistula closes, okay? In the advent of internal stenting, at either ERCP or placing a stent anti-grade via the cystic duct, the role of the T-tube is really diminished. So if I do a cholidocotomy, I put an internal stent in and take out all, you know, take out all the stones, put in a stent, sew up the bile duct, come back at ERCP and just pull the stent out, do a cholangiogram and you're happy. So I've once or twice had to put a T-tube in and that would be, I guess, if you can't get internal drainage or, and this is going to happen more and more, you can't get to the ampulla. So someone's had a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, they've then developed a buttload of bile duct stones, you've got to go and do a cholidocotomy because their gallbladder's already gone, and then you've got no way if you put a stent in of getting it out, so you, you put a T-tube in. But most of the time now, internal biliary drainage is the way. So a hole in the side of the bile duct, if there's loss of tissue, then a T-tube is still a good idea. But if there's just a bit of a chip there, I will usually ERCP them and just put a covered stent in and leave it. And you leave that, you can leave it three months, change it, leave it another three months. You know, eventually this will start to remodel around the stent and you hopefully you'll heal without a stricture. For a divided bile duct, obviously that's not going to work and you need to reconstruct it. The principles then is that you resect up to just below the hilum. Again, it's nice to have a CT cholangio or a, um, you know, at least a good CT scan to make sure you don't have a really low inserting posterior sector or segment six duct. Um, but then you come up to the hilum, get back onto healthy bleeding bile duct and do your hepaticojejunostomy. So you come to, but just below the DJ flexure, a comfortable distance, divide the small bowel, take that in a retrocolic tunnel up the right side, lay it across the front of the liver, give yourself 60 centimetres. If you have it shorter than that, you get food refluxing up your bile duct limb. So 60 seems to be a reasonable length. And then you do your enteroenterostomy the hepaticojejunostomy. So hepaticojejunostomy, I put my corner stitches in, make a cut on the bowel the same size as the flattened bile duct, put your corner stitches in, stitch your back row and tie them, stitch your front row and then tie them all. Yeah? There's a million ways to do that. You've just got to have a way that works well for you, put a drain in and get out of there. The, the long-term consequences, unfortunately, are often still stricturing, I think because of the concomitant vascular damage so there's been so much diathermy around the duct that all of the little vessels supplying the duct are dead um, but that's just something you deal with in time so biliary strictures are a pain but they're generally treatable with you know stenting and eventually dilatation and that kind of stuff with the um talking about doing a subtotal cholecystectomy mm. do you think in the exam nowadays it would be reasonable to say you would do that rather than open oh that's a really good question so i think it's a much better idea People used to say, don't do a subtotal, just open, because they'd done 5,000 opens and then they'd learn to do lap. And, but their, their view of what's easy is so different to yours as a new trainee that you might open and think, well, I don't know what this looks like. You know, like I've done 10 of these. 
and they were all Whipples. You know, they were all something completely different operation. Never done a planned open collie. So, no, I agree. I would say going for a, you know a laparoscopic subtotal. It's it's unless you need to get your hand in and feel the stone. That's the only benefit to going open, right? So if you th- if you say, look, I'm going to take the front wall off the gallbladder, get all the stones out, use a, a, a forceps in the duct there laparoscopically and scrape that last stone out, be happy I've got bile coming back. Yeah, that's a very safe thing to do. Yeah. And do you have a preference for fenestrating versus constituting? <laughs> yeah, look, I never, I, I never thought I'd reconstitute one. And then I did the other day when we had a, a cirrhotic and we just, uh, you know, the... We'd, we'd tried to dissect down, but we had a, a big stone in Hartman's pouch and a, such a stiff but also fatty liver that you just couldn't get to the back wall. So we ended up just cutting all the front wall off and then I lifted the stone out, which is clearly the, the only problem, and then I just stitched the front wall back up to reconstitute and then his repeat scan looks like we never did anything, but he's now got no stone. So he will get stones again because they all do. The, the Chinese did a trial where they did a gallbladder open, stones out, close up, and they all got stones eventually again. Um, but his gallbladder is now much smaller and may not squeeze, and so it may never, may never cause cholecystitis, that stone. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. But in general, I would say you just open the gallbladder, take the front wall off the gallbladder. Because once you're in the gallbladder, it's very hard to then get into the bile duct you know, if you just keep opening the gallbladder, you can keep trimming. As long as you're staying on the gallbladder, you're, you're, you're safe, yeah? And then you see in the inside, you see that first little fold of the, of the cystic and just put your stitches, just whack some stitches in there, yeah? Or don't, you know, leave it open and leave it drain and just say it's gonna, it'll fibrose pretty quickly. If it doesn't, give it a week and then ERCP them, that's fine. Yeah, just don't cause bile duct injuries. I mean, that's the, that's the key thing, isn't it? Like. Do what you need to do to get that patient out of trouble. Well, I think that was all I had. Thanks so much for having me on your fabulous show. No, thank you for making it fabulous. That was fantastic. Anyone wants clarification, um, stick my email on your on your thing. They're almost always happy to email me questions or whatever. Yeah, happy to help. Oh, thanks so yeah, much. That's all right. Best of luck for the exams. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!